So would you please open your Bibles to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16, and if you don't know where Leviticus is, you go to the beginning of the Bible, you have Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus, right there. And if you can, would you stand so we can read God's beautiful and powerful word. Uh, let's read first. And it, verses 1 through 5 is, is instructions for Adam, the, the high priest. So let's read verses 6 through 10 after the Lord commands him to uh, wash himself and the animals he has to bring. He says, verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that he may be sent away into the wilderness. Now let's jump to verses uh, 15. Let's read verses 15 through 22. It says, Then he, referring to the high priest, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do it with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. Verse 17, No one may be in the, in the tent of meeting from the time he, referring to the high priest, enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around it. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Now let's just skip to verse 29. And it shall be a statue to you forever that in the seventh month of, on the tenth day of the month you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native nor the strangers who sojourners among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Please be seated. 
Oh Lord, we, we, we beg, we ask you, we cry out to you, they would help us, help me to be faithful to you, help the congregation to be faithful as they are listening. We, we both have responsibilities before you, so help us. Help me to be faithful, help me to be clear. I pray that your Holy Spirit literally used chains to tie my mouth and my heart to your word. And the same for the congregation, that their ears would be attentive and ready to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We, last Lord's Day, we started a series on a theology of forgiveness. And I was thinking, where to start? If you were to start studying about forgiveness, where to go to learn more about forgiveness? So I went to Amazon, and I did a search on Amazon. So I put there, books about forgiveness. Over 10,000 results. So where to start? Titles such as Forgiveness. 21 days to forgive everyone for everything. Forgiveness. How to make peace with your past and get on with your life. The book of forgiving. The fourfold path for healing ourselves. Our and our world. Then you have the forgiveness workbook. So, so many titles about forgiveness. Where to start? I believe that most of these experts would say that's foolishness for us to go to an event that took place over 3,000 years ago in a very distant place between, we could think about where we were here in Leviticus 16, uh, in the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula between Egypt and Canaan, what expert on forgiveness would take us there and say, hey, if you want to learn about forgiveness, you, you need to go to that place. And that day, Yom Kippur, and there was one man with a beard, and he would bathe himself multiple times, put some linen garments, and then he had to get a bow, he had to get goats, a ram, then he would sacrifice those Animals, and then one of the animals, he would lay both hands upon the animal's head and then send the animal outside the camp. The question becomes, what, what can we learn about forgiveness with this weird, random, bloody, gruesome story? How am I going to learn about forgiveness, forgiving my spouse, forgiving my kids, forgiving my brothers and sisters in Christ, or even understand the forgiveness of God towards me? With a story so weird and so far away from us. And yet, that's one of the foundational stories that we have in the Bible in order for us to learn about God's forgiveness. There are many passages we could go. Think about Matthew 18 in the New Testament where Jesus frequently speaks about forgiveness. But I strongly believe that for us to better understand forgiveness, apply that to our lives, we need to go to the foundation of the Bible. And that's the first five books. The Torah or the law. Those first five books is literally the foundation of all the doctrines that we have. They always spring out of that place. So, in our last sermon, we look at the importance of forgiveness in the Word of God. We saw how it's a massive subject throughout the Scriptures. And then we saw how it's a massive subject in the character of God. God's a forgiving God. Today we're going to start a journey, and, and that's the drum of forgiveness. We're going to walk through the drum of scriptures 
from the beginning to the end to see how forgiveness is developed throughout the Bible. Because once we understand the theology, the biblical theology of forgiveness, how it develops, then we can be able to apply. You see, most of you are coming and say, now I need the practical things. Should I be forgiving such and such? Why am I carrying guilt? When should I withhold forgiveness? That's the questions we, we want answered. No, 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 no. We don't start there. We start with a biblical understanding these stories, what God has done through history in order for us to learn and apply forgiveness into our lives. Amen? So, here's the outline. So, we're going to be looking first at forgiveness and the theme of the Bible first. We're going to see how to understand forgiveness, we need to understand the main theme of the Bible. Then we're going to move to Genesis 3, Exodus 12, and Leviticus 16. May the Lord help us. So the first one is forgiveness and the theme of the Bible. If you ask someone, what is forgiveness? Uh, remember that question, what is forgiveness? And I think it becomes easier for us to understand forgiveness when we understand the main story of the Bible. What is the Bible all about? What is the major theme of the Bible? And I think it's very easy for us to understand. You look at the first two chapters of the Bible, and the last two chapters, you have the beginning and the end, and that will help you understand the story of the Bible. And the beginning and the end of the Bible is God making a place to dwell with a people. He makes a place and a people for Himself. Genesis 1 and 2. Revelation 21, 22. God remakes a people and remakes a place for Him to dwell with His people. So what is the story of the Bible? God dwelling with His people. God making a way to dwell with His people. That will help us understand sin and forgiveness of sin. So, and I'm not alone. Roy Siampa, he says, The whole of the the biblical narrative has to do with the loss of God's presence. An ultimate restoration of humanity to the fullness of the presence of God. To lose the garden and the land was understood to imply the loss of the presence of God. The promise of restoration included at its most fundamental level the promise of the restoration of God's presence in the midst of His people. So the main theme of the Bible is God creating a people to dwell with Him and these people enjoying Enjoy His smiling face, the life-giving, joy-abiding presence of God. And then in between, we have God making a way because of sin for people to dwell with Him by forgiving their sins through a series of covenants and the coming of the Messiah. So if you think about the, the major story of the Bible, dwelling in God's presence, and then we think about sin, what is sin? Sin is a rebellion towards this God that leads to separation from God's presence. Departure, exile. So think about sin. The major consequence of sin is exile from God's presence. Man is no longer dwelling with God and enjoy His presence. That's the major consequence. So sin is exile from God's presence. It's rebellion that leads to exile. No longer enjoying the smiling face of God. So forgiveness of sins is primarily what? Restoring. 
Right? If sin brings the destruction of the relationship, that's the major story of the Bible. Living with God, dwelling with Him. Sin brings the exile from God's presence. Forgiveness of sins is what? An exodus. Restoration. A journey back into God's presence and life. Amen? So, and we see this starting in Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 first of all introduces sin and then the necessity of forgiveness of sins so sin we see how it's an exile from God's presence because first of all as soon as Adam and Eve sin the first thing they do when God shows up is to do what? they hide themselves exile they don't want to be in God's presence and God doesn't want them in his presence with sin so you see the departure exile from God's presence Michael Morales, he says, Having lost the presence of God, humanity has lost its purpose. The children of Adam now sojourn outside the door of God's dwelling, outside the light of His countenance. This expulsion from the divine presence is the central tragic event that drives the history of redemption, determining and shaping the ensuing biblical narrative. Indeed, all of the drama of Scripture is found in relation to this singular point of focus. Yahweh, the Lord, opening up the way for humanity to dwell in His presence once more. That's the major story of the Bible. So that's why it's so important, this forgiveness of sins, to restore man into God's presence. And how He's going to do that, right in Genesis 3.15, He tells us, through the seed of the woman. There is a seed who will come and he will undo the consequence of the fall. What is the major consequence of the fall? Separation from God. So the Messiah will come and he's going to undo that. The seed of the woman that's developed throughout the Bible is going to undo the consequence of the fall. Uh, and it's interesting that it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. And then he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here he starts seeing that to have forgiveness of sins, it's going to be accomplished through the seed. But what's going to happen to the seed first? Bruised by a serpent. If you are beaten by a snake, what happens? You have blood. And most certainly, a poisonous snake, you're going to be dead. And the picture is that the seed of the woman, the Messiah, he will conquer, he will crush, but first he's going to crush how? Through death and suffering, shedding blood. So he starts seeing that right there, in order to have the forgiveness of sins and the restoration, blood will be shed. The seed will be Bruised, hurt by the serpent. Uh, so forgiveness of sin will be costly. The heel of the Savior will be crushed by the serpent's mouth. Uh, another thing we see in Genesis 3, and we've we got to always be careful, but there seems to have support here to see a change in Adam and Eve. So in Genesis 3, look at verses 20 and 21. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve. Eve. Hawa. 
or zoe in Greek, life, life. Because she was the mother of all living. And right after that, we, we hear, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. There seems to be a change in Adam and Eve, and we always got to be careful, but by naming, by trusting in God's promise now, and naming his wife Eve, life, he seems to be showing that I should not have trust the promise of the serpent. And now he's trusting the word of God. Stephen Dempster, he says, The man names his wife Eve, which means life. Here the man shows belief in God's promise that life will finally triumph over death and that Eve will have children, one of whom will eventually crush the head of the serpent. Because it's interesting that right after he names his wife Eve, a sign of repentance and faith, what does the Lord do? Clothes them with garments of skin. Uh, Remember that Genesis was written by whom? Moses. Who was the first audience? The Israelites in the wilderness. They are the first ones reading this, listening to Moses. And as soon as they hear about garments of skin, do you know what comes in their minds? The whole sacrificial system. Priest, high priest, death, blood. So... Right here, we start seeing God as clothing them and implying sacrifice. There is blood being shed in order to forgive sins. That's something that's going to be, that was implied in 315, that's going to be developed in the book of Leviticus, and then it's so clear in the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews 9:22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the, blood shed, and the, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They start seeing how there, there is a need for blood. Uh, besides that, we, we know that Cain and Abel, they would offer sacrifice to the Lord. Why are they offering sacrifices to the Lord? Because Adam taught them. So we start seeing some, there, there seems to be, we've got to always be careful, but there seems to be a change here. And the Bible does emphasize that. The Bible emphasizes the original sin that Adam brought. But as you keep reading the narrative, there seems to be, a change and God clothes them. The clothing of someone was a picture of investiture, of office and status. So, for example, in Luke chapter 15, do you remember when the prodigal son comes back? What does the father do? Put garments on the son, the forgiving father, put garments. So, to quote Dempster once again, he says, uh, Let me just go back here. Yeah, right here. Obtaining Animal skins would have required the death of an animals in the garden. Here then is God's first act of violence, which he performed in order to cover the shame and guilt of human beings. This is the first step in a long road, which will eventually lead to the complete removal of shame and guilt for human beings through another more effective sacrificial death, a death that will result in robes of righteousness. So we start seeing the development of how forgiveness of sins requires what? Sacrifice, death, pain. Uh, we have the story of Noah, Genesis, especially 
6 through 9, but especially chapters 8 and 9, you see how even after the whole flood and the death of, we don't know how many people died, yet it's only after Noah offers a sacrifice that the Lord is appeased. After Noah offers a sacrifice, a blameless animal being sacrificed, the Lord is appeased. So he starts seeing the development of the theme of forgiveness through Genesis and culminates with Joseph, who is a type of Christ, and you see his forgiving heart, ready to forgive his brothers. And they repent, and they cry, and they show their remorse, godly remorse, and Joseph is ready to forgive them. And that leads us to Exodus. Now we come to Exodus. Chapter 12, vital chapter in the Bible. What do we have in Exodus chapter 12? The Passover. That's the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. So Exodus started to bring more light into forgiveness of sins. And the Passover is completely, deeply related to forgiveness of sins. We see that before Israel is brought into the divine presence, there must be blood, there must be death of the sacrifice. Think about that. Israel, before God comes... And just gets Israel out of Egypt and says, you're mine. No, he shows that to pardon and redeem them, he needs to do a, provide a lamb, a blameless lamb. There must be the sacrifice in order to have redemption. And you think and you read Exodus 12 uh, about the whole Passover ritual. Remember, they would get that blameless lamb. They would bring the lamb into their home. So they had to spend days with that lamb as creating that bond between the family and the animal. They're all together. And then would come the time when he had to sacrifice the animal on the day that the Lord had appointed. And think about, how did they sprinkle the blood around the doorpost? Remember what they used to do? The hyssop. The hyssop. Remember, the, the, the families in Israel, the families of Israel in Egypt, they would have to get the hyssop and spread the blood all over the doorposts. And he, if we have eyes to see the development of the biblical understanding, is that that blood with the hyssop is implying forgiveness of sins. We know that because in Psalm 51 7, Psalm 51 7, David says, Purge me with what? Hyssop. He's taking us back to Exodus. And the blood of the Lamb. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So hyssop became a plant that represented forgiveness of sins. You think about the Exodus. The lamb dies as a substitute, and the blood of that lamb is sprinkled on the doorpost with the hyssop. And that is if every, the family is coming inside that door, and that blood now is covering them, providing the forgiveness of sin, so when the angel of death comes, he will pass over it. But he passed over it, not because he's ignoring the sin of those people, it's because the sin of those people were dealt with the sacrifice. And they needed faith and repentance. Because let me tell you, families of Israel that did not have faith in God's word and did not put the blood, they died. They require faith and repentance. Faith to believe in God's promise and repentance to say, we need to walk away from here. So it starts in the development of the theme of forgiveness. And the New Testament develops the whole Passover system, especially Jesus. You think about Jesus as he's celebrating 
the Last Supper, that was the Passover meal, he, he gets the whole thing and he says, it's all about me bringing forgiveness of sins. Or think about John, the Gospel of John. He, he, John is the major one in trying to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. And in John chapter 19, verse 29, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, do you remember what they bring to Jesus? That sponge with the vinegar, whatever that drink is. And do you remember what they used you? The hyssop. So here's John connecting the whole life of Jesus with the Passover lamb in order to bring forgiveness of sins. And Paul makes it even more clear when he says in Ephesians 1.7, Paul says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood. Where, where is he getting this language from? Redemption through blood. Where is that from? Especially Exodus 12, where the people of Israel is redeemed through the blood of the lamb. And then Paul Look at it. He explains what is redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So he starts seeing the development of forgiveness of sins, the necessity of a sacrifice, the necessity of blood being shed to purify, to redeem a people. So we move from Genesis 3.15 to Exodus 12, and now we come to Leviticus chapter 16. And Leviticus is vital to understand this whole Topic of forgiveness of sins. In the book of Exodus, as we come towards the end of the book of Exodus, what do we have there? Does anybody remember what we have towards the end of the book of Exodus? Tabernacle. The glory of Yahweh right there. But there is a problem. So do you see, that's, that's the glory of restoration, glorious restoration. Since the Garden of Eden, God had not been dwelling with men. So now, for the first time, God is tabernacling among men. So the tabernacle is ready. The glory is there. But there is a great crisis. What is the problem? Moses cannot go inside. And that's to show how, how, how sinful men will dwell with this holy God. And that's the whole book of Leviticus. To teach us how sinful men will dwell with a holy God. And how, how is that going to be accomplished? Through the whole sacrificial system. Forgiveness of sins. The purification of sins will be accomplished through death and blood for man and God to dwell together. So, uh, Leviticus, as you can see, stands in the heart of the Torah. I think about the Torah, that's the foundational block of our revelation that we have. The Torah or the law. We have Genesis, land lost. Exodus. It's a journey to that land where God's going to dwell with them. And then you have in the middle Leviticus. Then you have Numbers. It's journey. And then you have Deuteronomy. It's about to conquer the land that had been lost. And right in the middle you have Leviticus. Why? Leviticus is teaching us how God is going to dwell with His people. Do you remember we read last Lord's Day in Exodus 34? Talk about God's character that He is rich, rich in hesed, in loving kindness, is low to anger, and then tells us that he's forgiving. But how does he forgive? And Leviticus teaches us through the sacrificial system. That's how he's going to forgive us and allow us to dwell with him. So the day of atonement, I don't know if I have here, the day of atonement, 
is the most important day. Let me just go back here. And you can see how Moses, as he's writing the Torah, he puts the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, in the heart of the Torah. So in the center, in the center, in the center is Leviticus 16. So you have Genesis, Exodus, then you have the first 15 chapters of Leviticus, then you're going to go down, coming to Numbers, Deuteronomy, and right in the center there is the book of Leviticus, and in the heart of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. That's amazing. The Day of Atonement, or the Day of Forgiveness of Sins, was celebrated around mid-September, mid-October, was the day on which the previous year's sins were symbolically atoned for by cleansing the sanctuary. Israel thus have been able to begin a new year as a forgiven people. That's the importance of the Day of Atonement. They're forgiven. They're clean. God can continue dwelling with them. Sins have been removed. So it's fascinating, just going back here, how at the heart of the law, you think about the heart of the Torah, the heart, it's not the Ten Commandments. For most people, the heart of the law is the Ten Commandments. No, it's not creation. It's not even the tabernacle. It's not the Exodus or the Passover. The heart of the Torah is what? Forgiveness of sins. How God is providing forgiveness of sins to dwell with His people. So, the Day of Atonement is crucial because we need to think about the toxicity of sin. Sin spreads all over. Sin is like Ebola. Do you remember Ebola? A virus, nasty, spreading that's like sin. Sin is just like that. It spreads all through, contaminates everything. And that's why they need to purify everything. The whole camp must be purified and cleansed from sin. Even the, sometimes you read some laws and why after birth it's considered unclean? Why this is considered unclean? It's all because somehow they have been infected with sin. A lot of the things that they need to be purified from, they're not sin in itself. But you think about blood, there's some, some, some sort of contact with the realm of death that's brought by sin. So that's why they must be purified. So sin spreads and propagates. See, that, that's why they need to be cleansed. The whole place, people, camp, the tabernacle. And we know how it was contaminated by the two sons of Aaron in the stories prior. Do you remember the two sons of Aaron? They come into the Holy of Holies and what happened to them? They're killed. Then you have unclean bodies inside the Holy of Holies. So the whole place must be clean, purified. So think about the word atonement, the day of atonement. The English word atonement has its root meaning in at one meant. Meaning the bringing of two parties together at once. The two parties that were hostile, hostile towards one another, now they are brought together. And that's exactly what the day of atonement will accomplish, is to bring these two parties together, God and sinful Israel. So, And you see that by verses 29 and 30. Look at that. 
Leviticus 16. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. That's what atonement brings. Atonement brings the reconciliation. Uh, we call the day of atonement as Yom Kippur. Yom is day, Kippur from Kapar. That's the word for atonement. Uh, the word is used 16 times in Leviticus 16. And we start seeing how this word for atonement, kapar, is related to forgiveness. We can see in Isaiah chapter 6, for example, verse 7. Remember, Isaiah sees, he, he's taken into this heavenly holy of holies where he sees the Lord. Do you remember what the, the seraphim does? Takes the fiery coal. Something that Aaron had to bring to the holy of holies. And he touches his lips... Because remember, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm sinful. And then we read, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, forgiveness of sins. Atonement is deeply inseparable from forgiveness of sins. So what is the Day of Atonement? You've got to see what the Day of Atonement accomplishes. What is atonement? So when you read what the Day of Atonement accomplishes is to bring these parties together. There is the wiping away of sin, the cleansing, the cleansing of God's house, God's people. They're all together. So I like what Morales says. He says, atonement, that is reconciliation between God, the Creator, and sinful humanity, is at the heart of the Pentateuch's theology. Indeed, the Day of Atonement is found at the literary center of the Pentateuch's central book, Leviticus 16. The ritual drama, the ritual drama performed by the high priest, along with the severe warnings against neglecting this convocation, served to catechize, to teach Israel about the dire need of cleansing and the forgiveness of sins. And it's actually a drama that... The, the high priest is performing as he's going to the Holy of Holies. Imagine that you're watching that, and they were all supposed to be standing watching. Here is this man. He needs to bathe himself. He needs to remove his holy, glorious garments, put some humble linen garments. He needs to work with a bowl, kill, get blood, go inside, come back, wash himself, take incense, get a goat. So you see, it's a whole drama that people are watching. And that's actually the drum of Eden. That's the drum of the Garden of Eden with Adam. On the Day of Atonement, Adam's eastward, remember, Adam was kicked out east of the garden, was reversed with the high priest walking west. So we see that, so here's, that's from Morales' book. We see how Forgiveness brings an exodus, restoration to God's presence. So you read the book of Genesis and you see how people, because of sin, they keep moving eastward. And Adam and Eve went east of the Eden. And they kept moving eastward, farther and farther from God's presence. So going west means what? Going back into God's presence. And that's how the, the, the whole camp was structured. And that's how the tabernacle was structured. So the high priest would walk back as westwards. As if he's coming to the presence of God. And now he comes to the presence of God with blood. 
Because there is life, there is pardon, there is forgiveness of sins with a blameless sacrifice. So he's doing the opposite of what happened to Adam. And we know that exile is east. So he moved east. So that's why what happens to the other goat where all the sins are placed upon? What happens to the scapegoat? He goes east from the tabernacle. He moves east because of sin. Sin takes us away from God's presence. But the blameless sacrifice brings us into God's presence. So that's the whole drama that we see with the Day of Atonement. God is painting, showing. So atonement was the work of God through the high priest in order to provide forgiveness of sins. On that day, the high priest had to wash himself, and that's a symbolism of what? Purification. Washing himself, then he would remove his glorious garments of a high priest, and he would put the linen, the regular ones, even though that was still devoted to God as holy, consecrated, but to show humility. So we start seeing this picture of humility in order to have forgiveness of sins. Another aspect that we see here is confession of sins. So we read in verses 20 through 22, And when he, has, when, when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both hands, both hands, on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions and all their sins. Do you remember Exodus 34? Forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sins. It's all placed now upon the goat's head. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So the sins here are pictured as placed upon this goat. And now this goat is full, filled with sin. That's why this goat is no longer sacrificed and brought into God's presence. He's full of sin. He needs to be taken away from God's presence. He goes east. All the other sacrifices, they would put just one hand on the animal. Do you remember? They would put one hand on the animal, and that was to identify. It's as if, okay, by faith in the promise, this blameless animal represents me, and he goes into God's presence. So it's as if by the sacrifice, the unclean person would become blameless. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? The one who is pure in heart, the blameless one. So just the hand was a sign of identification. This blameless animal represents me. But this one is different. The two hands in confessing sins. Therefore, the animal now is full of sin. It's not a transfer of righteousness or blameless. It's a transfer of sin. Therefore, the animal cannot be slaughtered and given to the Lord. He's going to be sent away outside the camp. So that's what takes place. Let me ask you, what if the high priest did not confess the sins of the people? Would they be forgiven? No. Because they would be disobeying God's word. Hmm. If the high priest would not confess the sins of the people, there would be no forgiveness of sins. Why? Because he would be disobeying God's word. God commanded them to confess their sins in order to achieve forgiveness of sins. Ah. So he starts seeing something being developed here. And that's what John says in 1 John. 
He's talking about Jesus as our propitiation, as our lamb or goat that brings us into God's presence. He says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous and just to forgive us of all iniquities. So, uh, there is contrition and repentance. Look at verse 31. And I need to move quick because the time is flying. Uh, verse 31 says, it, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest. You and you shall afflict yourselves. Afflict. That, that same word is for repentance. Sometimes use or contrition, humiliation, or fasting. Fasting is deeply connected with being broken before the Lord. So that's... The, and honestly... If, we, if you translate as fasting here, that's the only command in the whole Old Testament of God for people to fast. It would be on the Day of Atonement. Sometimes you think there are a bunch of commandments about fasting. That's the only God-ordained fasting if we translate that Hebrew word as fasting, like some translations do. But the picture is indeed a time of brokenness, humiliation before God. And also, look at verse 33. We also see another important aspect about forgiveness and atonement. Look at verse 33. And he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests, and for who else? Who? All the people of the assembly. Huh. So there is no atonement for the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Jebusites, the Phoenicians, the Syrians. No. Just for those who by faith had come to the community of God's people. Here you see limited atonement. Limited atonement. It's limited in its scope. It's unlimited in power. <laughs> Iniquity, sins, rebellion, whatever. Whatever sins were committed, they will be forgiven. But there is a limitation in the scope. It's just for those who are God's people. So, concluding here. Some concluding thoughts and application. What do we do? We, we walk through Genesis 3. We walk through Exodus 12, Leviticus 16. What can we learn? So here's some just... Basic points that we can learn from this passage. First of all, God has no obligation to forgive anyone. First of all, God has no obligation to forgive anyone. He forgives because He's gracious, merciful, and full of compassion. Nobody deserves forgiveness. Second, sin's greatest tragedy is the removal of fellowship between God and man. That's exile. Sin's greatest tragedy is not the misery that I have. It's that I cannot dwell in God's presence. I cannot behold His smiling face. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Being away from His presence is the opposite. So forgiveness of sin is an exodus movement by which we are able to enjoy God's fellowship once again. In God's sovereign and glorious plan, forgiveness of sins, that's number three, forgiveness of sins can only be accomplished through sacrifice. In God's sovereign and glorious plan, that's only through sacrifice. We see how Genesis 3, Leviticus 16, passing through Exodus 12, the shedding of blood is necessary for forgiveness of sins. 
And then we know how it's accomplished only through Jesus. Let me tell you, Muhammad will not forgive you. Muhammad cannot, cannot provide forgiveness of sins between you and the Holy God. Buddha cannot do that. The Pope cannot do that. And you cannot do that for yourself. It's only Christ Jesus. Repentance, number four. Repentance and confession of sins are necessary means of applying forgiveness. And number five, once forgiveness is executed, God's gracious and life-giving presence is open for those forgiven. That's all we see here, five basic lessons. Why is that important? Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, he says, Be kind to one another, tender heart, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So all these things that are taking place throughout the scriptures teach us and informs us of how God has forgiven us. How God has forgiven us. And that will help us to forgive others. So first of all, we know that forgiveness is costly. It's painful. Forget about the forgive, forgive and forget. As if that's easy. Not painful. No. Forgiveness is painful. It's costly. It was costly for us to be forgiven by God. And it costs us to forgive one another. It's a sacrifice. That's worship. God doesn't want anything cheap and easy. It has to be sacrificial. So forgiveness is a sacrificial act. When my brother or sister asks me to forgive her of her sins, or if I ask you to forgive of my sins, what do we do? Yes, I'll clothe you. I clothe with garments of forgiveness because of the sacrifice of Christ and because I love my Lord and I love you. Just like God clothe me with garments of forgiveness, I will clothe you with garments of forgiveness. Because of the blood of Christ, we can go to the Passover and, and, and say, can say to me, Google, I forgive you. Because of the blood of Christ. Because of the blood of Christ that was applied, it's the hyssop of Christ upon you and upon me, I will pass over. Your sins. Your sins have been covered by Christ. Like the high priest on the day of atonement, we must confess our sins. It's not just, I'm sorry. You've got to be clear. What, you're sorry about what? What is to be sorry for? I have sinned against you. I have sinned. That's what we don't like to say, because then you need to be specific that you sin. I have sinned against you, Charlene. Would you please forgive me? I sinned. I was not kind towards you. I was not gentle as I should. I gossip about you. The confession of sins. The high priest shows us there must be confession of sins. So, those are some practical things that we can learn from all this text here. That's just the beginning, the foundation of the theology of forgiveness. I think the most glorious thing is how... Leviticus 16 is 
taken by the author of Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, he, what the author of Hebrews does is he goes to the Day of Atonement and he shows how Jesus fulfills the Day of Atonement. How Jesus is not only the great high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. Jesus' atoning death removed our sins once for all. He was cut off from the land of living, just like the second goat. He bore our iniquities outside the camp, doing what? Opening the way for us to go westward, back into God's presence. I think about sins that we have committed, and sometimes we, we like to label smaller sins, greater sins, sins with greater consequences, sins with such lesser consequences. But here is the thing. When you look at Leviticus 16, it's pointing to us to Christ who would forgive us of all our iniquities, all the sins. And because of his blameless life, Paul says that he who knew no sin what? became sin for us. That's the, the, the scapegoat. All our sins transferred. He goes east. And because of his blameless life, we can go what? West. I remember the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. That's how he wipes away our sins. The two goats, one going east, one going west. And that's what we have in Christ. Our sins are taken away, and we are brought into God's beautiful, glorious presence. That's forgiveness of sins. So you think about, when you're thinking about forgiveness, remember Leviticus 16, remember the two goats, and remember that at the heart of the heart of the heart of the law is forgiveness of sins. Amen? And that's only in Jesus Christ. Only Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, we declare that you are indeed so awesome and we are humbled by your majesty. We adore you. We praise you. You are a forgiving, loving, patient God. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ who is our day of atonement, our Yom Kippur. He is the perfect sacrifice he became for us, that scapegoat, that's, that's what we deserve, to be outside your presence forever because of our sins. And yet in Christ we have redemption, we have forgiveness of sins, we are brought back into the presence of God and we can enjoy, we can enjoy life in your presence. Please forgive us for not using this privilege that we have to dwell with you, Lord or minimizing such a glorious blessing. For those who are here and don't know your forgiveness, I pray that even now, Lord, you just kick open that heart, invade with grace and mercy, and help people to behold the glory that we have in Christ of being forgiven. As far as the east is from the west. 
Our sins, they are great. Your mercy is more. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.